Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Man, I have, uh, I've been studying something this week that I really want to share with you, but I don't feel like the Lord will let me yet. So, but it has so intrigued me. I have never seen this before. In 35 years of pre, well, 38 years of preaching the gospel, I've never, is that, is that not that long? My goodness, somewhere around there. But, uh, man, but I, don't, I don't feel like it's time. So we're going we're gonna to look at something else this morning. Uh, Turn with me, turn with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. I want to tell you a couple stories, and then I'm going to root it in Scripture. Okay. Back in 2008, uh, we had a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit. 2009, we invited for the first time a man who's become a dear friend and, a, and a really a, 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 a father to this house. He's an external overseer. He's, he's one of three external overseers that we have that, uh, that give covering to our church. And his name is Paul Yadao. He's an apostolic leader out of the Philippines. Paul was supposed to be with us a few months ago, but couldn't get out of the Philippines due to COVID. And so we're hoping we can get him in this year. But Paul is just a wonderful man of God, wonderful teacher. And uh, so he, for the first time we'd ever had him, I just met at him and he came in and he was teaching among other things about soaking. Anybody know what soaking is? Soaking is, is just a word that they use for uh, just spending time in the presence of the Lord, laying before the Lord and uh, allowing the waiting on the Lord, allowing his presence to come upon you and soaking in God's presence. And so Paul has, he has a manual on it and just some good teaching. And so we were all doing that. And Paul was teaching in here on a Saturday morning. At the time, this sanctuary this was the house of prayer and the wall was right about where my wife is sitting and uh, that was the sanctuary and I was laying on the platform and uh, I was snorking. You know what snorking is? It's a mixture of soaking that gets so good you start snoring. And uh, so when you're the pastor and you start snoring in a prayer meeting, you know, soaking meeting, it's a bit embarrassing so I would... I start speaking in tongues, you know, and kind of stir myself like, so hopefully people thought that was some weird tongue, you know. And it happened about three times. I'm serious. And I'd look around to see if anybody heard me. And, uh, but it was very relaxing. It was wonderful. And uh, as I'm laying there, all of a sudden, I felt something come by my right side, walk in front of me, and down through the, uh, the altar and up the aisle. And I jumped up. There was, there was nothing physically there. Uh, but I felt something, a power brush. And I jumped up and started saying, there's grace for unity. There's grace for Now, I'm, I didn't know if that was the kind of a sleep-induced declaration. Uh, but that's just what came out of my heart when I, when I felt that. And Paul yelled something out. The next year, Paul returns, and he's teaching. It was in October of 2010, I believe, October 9th, I believe it was, and uh, we were soaking again, and again, your pastor was snorking, and uh, it's an it's a art I've cultivated over a long period of time. 
I'm, I'm a big believer in power naps, so I, that's why if you come to the prayer meetings in the morning and please come out, you'll see me pacing a lot. Because if I lay down, I'll enter into snorking. And uh, so anyway, uh, Paul's teaching on soaking, snorking, and I get up to go out into the, the hallway, because we're, now we're soaking, everybody's soaking, and so I'm, I'm walking so I don't snork, and uh, I walked out into the hallway and looked out at the land out here that we own, and immediately I went into a vision, and it was as though someone were to take a glass bowl and turn it over and put it over our property and then pour golden oil of it. It's like this golden dome of golden oil and then we were under it. And the Lord said a couple of things to me, but one of them was he said, the dew of Hermon will be released. And I was stunned and excited by what I saw, but frankly a little confused and even disappointed by what I heard. I came back in, and, and after the, the teaching time, I said to Paul, I said, Paul, the Lord, I told him what happened. And he said, oh, yeah, I released that last year. I said, what? And that is what, and I'd forgotten, that is what he yelled when I said, there's grace for unity, there's grace for unity, I said. And Paul said, and the dew of Hermon will be released. And it really stunned me because I realized I almost missed what the Lord had said a year ago, and he had to reiterate it to me. Speed forward uh, six months to a year later, we were, we were having a conference. Bill and Carol do, and Gary and Kathy Oates were here. And uh, Kathy Oates got up, and uh, just before she was going to speak, we were in a greeting time, and Roger McKim comes to me, and he says, hey, and he said there was a gentleman, and this, this gentleman was a homeless fellow that uh, at that time we had a lot of homeless people coming to Heartland, and I love that because I was once one, I was homeless, and so, man, I, I know that God can... Uh, redeem and get them on the right feet. And, and so we just, man, it was really a blessing to have those people in our church. And, uh, but they were, they were a little bit rough. I mean, you know, and uh, so this one guy, he would, he would be out in the parking lot after church smoking a cigarette and say, pastor, this is what I saw this morning. I saw three angels and, you know, and tell me all this stuff. And I, I didn't know what to think. I'd say, oh yeah, thanks. You know, but I'm thinking, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Okay. Well, that morning, he came up to Roger, and Ro he said, Roger, hey, I, there's two angels on the platform this morning. There's a, a smaller one. It's got red, uh, red. there's a red sash, red garland around the head, and, da -da. and then there's this big warrior angel standing right next to it. Just thought you'd want to know. They were right over here, there's, right, standing right in that corner. Roger said, okay, and Roger came over, hey, Dave, you know, th this, and he said, I, I don't know, you know. I said, okay, well, you know, I don't know either. And uh, what do you do with it? And uh, Kathy Oates gets up and she says, whenever I minister at a church, I ask God about the angel of that church. She said, but interestingly enough, there's two of them here this morning. She said, they're standing right here. And she began to describe in vivid detail the same thing the homeless guy said. To which point I began to repent very feverishly, you know, saying, God, forgive me for my unbelief. Oh, but she added something. She said that the, the shorter one is an angel of unity and the taller one is here to protect it. And it's then that I realized what I felt walked by me. And that's why I felt, man, unity just walked in the house. And I got up, there, there's grace for unity. There's good. Everybody's kind of looking at me like, Pastor, you're asleep. And, uh, and Paul, when Paul said, the dew of Hermon will be released, I'm thinking, what in the world was that? And it went right by me until the second year where the Lord showed me what he wanted to release. 
And that sent me on a journey into Psalm 133. And we're going to look at that this morning. Now, way back then, we preached on this for a long time. And I've referred to it over the years, off and on. But I want to revisit that principle this morning. Uh, About a year and a half ago, I touched on it when we were talking about four expressions in Scripture of the Spirit. We talked about how there's wells of salvation. We need to understand, you receive the Spirit when you're saved. You can't be saved without the Spirit. The Spirit, you receive the Spirit in salvation. He comes in you. That is how you are born again. You are regenerated. The power of the Spirit gives life to your dead spirit. and you are Because you were spiritually died with Adam and Eve. We were born dead, Scripture says, in our trespasses and sins. When we get saved, we're regenerated, which is just a... a technical term for being born again and we become partakers of the divine nature by the spirit but in salvation the spirit is in us so we have wells of salvation in Isaiah we drink from the wells then we have rivers of living water in the baptism in the Holy Spirit And the the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the born-again experience are two distinct things. Now, there's people that will teach and say, no, they're they're one and the same, that when you're saved, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the main, matter of fact, let's look at this real quick here. Uh, I think it's important for us to look at this verse because this is the main verse that it's hung on. Look at with me at 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And this is why a lot of people, well, this is the, the scripture they'll hang it on. The reason a lot of people will say that is because they haven't received the baptism and so they're, 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 they're trying to figure this thing out. Okay, look at 12, 12 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, or 12, 13, I'm sorry. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. Yeah, 12, 13. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. Uh, different translations will translate that word different. When it says baptized by one spirit, that word by is translated from the Greek word. It's pronounced N, E-N, but it, it's written like a little cursive E and a little N. That's the transliteration. And that word can be translated by, in, around, about. The context will drive the meaning of the word. And so we're baptized by one spirit into one body. Okay, now... Some people will say, well, this is saying that you're baptized in one spirit into one body. And there's a number of translations that will translate it that way. And so they're saying, see, the the baptism in the Holy Spirit happens when you come into the body, which obviously happens at salvation. How many would you agree that you are in the body when you get saved? The body of Christ is the, uh, he is the head, we are the body, all the members together make up the body. And so they say, well, if you're, you come into the body, that must be salvation, if you're, and then you're, you're baptized in the spirit into the body. Here's the problem with that. Now, man, I've just, got, I've just opened a can of worms here. I can't help myself. Okay, the pattern of baptism in scripture is always in a substance into an experience or a reality. I want you to hear that. In a substance, in, in a re, into, into a reality. 
okay? So the substance, let's, let's look at the first time baptism shows up. John's baptism. Remember John the baptizer. John the Southern Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He's baptizing people in water. But what does it say? He baptized them in water, the River Jordan, into what? Repentance. So there's always in something, into something. That's the formula of baptism. Now hermeneutics, which is the, the science of biblical interpretation, has a law called the law of first mention. And so when something is first mentioned, it crystallizes the meaning. Now it can build on that, but it will never violate that. Okay? So that's the law of hermeneutics. So we see in something, into something. So then you go to, the next time we see this begin to show up is in Paul's writings in Romans, where Paul is writing, well, you, we'll get to Acts, okay? But in Paul's writing in Romans, I'm talking about baptism in water, he says we're baptized in water into what in Romans 6? Christ's death, okay? So baptism it's a, it's a prophetic act in which you're baptized in a substance to activate a reality in your life. Now, the other thing we need to understand about baptism, I can't believe I went here because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. I need to have a graph. Okay, so it's in a substance into an experience. Everybody say that with me. In a substance, whether water or the Spirit, it's in a substance into an experience. Here's the other thing we need to realize about baptism in Scripture. You always, baptism is always after the fact. Now, let's, let's think about this. John's baptism into repentance. Remember, the, the soldiers and the Pharisees came and said, hey, baptize us. He said, no, bring forth fruit of repentance, then I'll baptize you into it. In other words, it's got to be reality before I seal it with baptism. It doesn't make it happen, it seals the reality, okay? Catch that? So it's always, baptism is after the fact, sealing something that has already happened in your life. That is an important principle. Because if you read this scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and without understanding that, then you think that your, bapt, that your baptism will cause you to go into the body. It's a sealing of the body. It seals you into it. So, water baptism According to John, you're in water, into repentance. That's already a reality in your life, but you're, you're presenting yourself as a candidate. Baptize me into that reality. It's a public act. I want everybody to know I have repented. That's what John's baptism was. The early church then added to that, and Paul deals with that in, in Romans 6. He says, you are baptized in water. That's the substance into the reality the, into Christ's death. But it doesn't save you. You're already a believer. We baptize believers. It's a public declaration of an inward reality. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm letting everybody know, hey, this has already happened. I'm, I've entered into Christ's death. Now I want to be baptized into that thing. I want to bury the old man because I agree with heaven's edict. That old guy, 
Dave, before Christ, deserves to die and deserves to be buried under the watery grave. And I want to come up red of that old dude. And so I want to walk free. And so I have a funeral. It's called water baptism. But it's something after the fact. Does that make sense? So we don't do it to make it happen. We do it to show that it's already happened. It's a sealing after the fact of something that's already happened. Okay. In order to understand baptism in the Spirit, you need to understand that about water baptism. Because Jesus used water baptism as a, a, a parable, so to speak, an illustration of what he's going to do with the Spirit. John says, what I do with water, the one coming after me will do with the Holy Ghost and fire. Jesus, John was, so the formula of baptism is you got a baptizer, you got a substance and a reality to baptize him in. John was the baptizer into repentance in water. The early church, the, uh, the, the early church uh, had somebody baptizing people into water, into the, the Christ's death. But G, when it comes to the baptism in the spirit, Jesus is the baptizer. He's the one that baptizes you. But what is the substance? The Spirit. In salvation, you took a drink and the Spirit is in you. In baptism, you take a bath and you're in the Spirit. Two different things. It's the fullness. It's the difference between taking a drink and taking a bath. It's one, the Spirit is in you. And Scripture uses that terminology. Oh, the, this, he, this, he has the Spirit, or he's in the Spirit. One, the Spirit's in you. The other one, you're in the Spirit. That is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. But Jesus is the baptizer. The substance is the Spirit. You come up dripping, saturated, soaked with the Spirit of the living God. Hallelujah. And fire. That one, that, that's, we don't have time to get into that. It's not as much a hallelujah moment at first because his winnowing fork is already in his hand to burn up the chaff, everything unusable in you. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna harvest you. The, the winnowing fork, here was the picture, okay? They had a, the high point in a harvest field. They would, they would mow it down and stamp it down with clay. So they had a flat place. It was called the... Uh, um, threshing floor and the reason it was the high place is because the wind would blow there the best so they would take everything they harvested and immediately put it on the threshing floor and then they had this giant rock like a Fred Flintstone car you know and they would crush it they'd push it over that to crush the outer husk and then they would take a winnowing fork, which was simply a, 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 like a pitchfork, and they would find a branch that was formed like a pitchfork, and they would throw it up in the air, and that which was usable was heavier. It had substance to it, but all the chaff would be caught by the wind, and it would blow it away. And so that's the way he would separate the chaff from the grain. But Jesus is more of a zealous farmer than the average farmer because most of them just let it blow away, not Jesus. He captures the chaff and burns it up with unquenchable fire. <laughs> wow, a little zealous there. Because he wants to burn away anything that is not usable so that all that remains is that which is usable and he wants to use you to feed the world. That's the picture. So we say, woo, Holy Ghost and fire. Yeah, if you realize it, oh, Holy Ghost and fire, <laughs> glory. It's great at the end, but it's not a fun process. So here's, and, and you see that in Jesus' life. He went down in the water, came up. 
the Spirit lit upon him, and immediately he went into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days. He went straight from the baptism of the Spirit into the baptism of fire in the wilderness to have challenged his heart to be challenged. That was the blast furnace. It says he went in the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he came out in the power because he'd been qualified to now begin his ministry. So the baptism of the Holy in, the, in water, in a substance, into a reality that's already true, an experience, a reality that's already true in you, but he's going to seal it with this prophetic act and, and make, the, make, the, it made it, make it experiential. That's what baptism is, and it's always after the fact. So in the baptism of the Spirit, Jesus baptizes us in the substance of the Spirit, but the reality he is registering in our life is the body of Christ. You're baptized in the baptismal. And this is something that is very rarely taught. I don't know anybody that, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on this. That the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're baptized in the Spirit, but you're baptized into the body of Christ. It's to make that an experiential reality. And that is why the, the context of spiritual gifts is always the body and the body is always the context of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Check it out. When it's talking about spiritual gifts, it begins to talk about the body. Why? Because the function of spiritual gifts in your life is to create your place in the body of Christ. That is the context of your functioning. Now, it can be an evangelistic gift that you're using outside the doors, but it's still connected to the body. And so we're being baptized in the Spirit into the body of Christ. But it's always after the fact. The Spirit only comes on Jesus and Jesus has to be in you in order for the Spirit to come upon you and baptize you in the Spirit. Does that make sense? How many of you did I lose you? Raise your hand. Okay, no one's going to admit it anyway. But it, uh, I wouldn't either tell you. Uh, so... We have salvation, wells of salvation. Then we have rivers of living water. In John chapter 7, it's released from our belly in the baptism. He said, you'll take a drink. All who are thirsty, come unto me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In other words, if you're hungry for God, come to him, drink from him. And that drink will actually become a river, a source of supply for other people. God wants to make you a source of supply. It's not just, we're not just drinkers. We're flowers. <laughs> the river's supposed to flow from us. Then there's this other expression we love around here. Outpourings of the Spirit. The heavens open. The latter rain. All this symbolism in Scripture. There's a number of passages that talk about revival. The heavens opening. Raining coming down. That's awesome. Outpourings of the Spirit. We need that. We need that in this nation. And I believe we're just around the corner of seeing the next great outpouring. I believe we're going to see the third great awakening of the United States. Amen. See, I told you we love that around here. Yeah, see? But that's not what we're talking about this morning. If I, if I had someone, you know, like some of the African-American church will have like the, the, the musician back there. He would have went... What we're talking about this morning is the dew of unity, the dew of the Spirit. That is the fourth expression of the Spirit in our life. There's these beautiful metaphors of water. It begins 
with a drink from the well of salvation. Then a river is released from our belly. We become the people of an outpouring and cry out. See, you've got, you got to learn, you drink, you get saved. You got to learn to replenish your own well so that you can become a source of supply. How do you do that? Get in a place, connect to a church that values the outpouring of the spirit. Get it, because what's going to replenish the dry well is the rain. But then we have this last installment of dew. And again, I was a bit disappointed when the Lord told me that. So much so, I don't know why I did this. I walked into the men's room and I leaned down the counter and looked in the mirror and said, dew? I don't know why I looked at myself in the mirror. But I had a conversation with the Lord looking in the mirror. I said, dew? Why do? I'm thinking outpouring. Not, you know, it just seemed boring to me. It didn't seem exciting. You know, it didn't seem like, man, this is what I'm contending for. And the Lord spoke to me. And this began the journey for me into this passage. And many of you took that journey with me. Some of, some of you old timers, not chronological age, just being around here. The Lord spoke to me very clearly that day and he said, it is my non-disruptive way of nourishing the land. And when he said that, it was like I got rained on right there. Because two years earlier, we had experienced an outpouring. And it was... It was, it was an outpouring and it was glorious and it was wonderful and... It was exhausting because we were here night after night after night. We would worship two, two and a half hours and I didn't want to touch it. Leif and I'd be laying on the floor. You go up. No, you go up. No, I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. We just keep going. It was, it was glorious. It was wonderful, man. Healings and deliverances and salvations and it was wonderful, but it was exhausting. And so when the Lord told me it's my non-disruptive way of nourishing the land, suddenly he had my attention. And I would propose to you this morning that this is the superior expression of what God wants to do. Even superior to outpourings. Although outpourings are, are necessary and they're, they're wonderful and they're glorious, but they're not sustainable at that level. Because when you, you look at the, the early days, many of you have heard of the Brownsville Revival. Some of you visited Back in 95, 94 it broke on Toronto. 95 it broke out in Pensacola, Florida. They would go to church at night at 6 p.m. And they would leave church around 6 a.m. They would literally be driving home as the sun's coming up. And then they'd go to work. It was in the early days of the revival. They had to curtail that. And so they, they started shutting down at midnight. And you'd be laid out on the floor and they'd say, all right. Just start flicking lights. Everybody out. Remember at revival places at that time, they'd have wheelchairs and they'd just kind of pile you in you'd be, and they'd dump you outside, you know, you're laying out there and, so they could lock up and get some rest because that, the, it, the, the, the pressure and the, the exhaustion, it was glorious, but God wants to give us something that can fit in with normal life. I mean, that's great. You got delivered. Your marriage was restored. You got freedom. You're having encounters with God, but you stink as an employee because you're falling asleep at the desk. That's not good. And so 
What God really wants to do is break us into this dew of Hermon. Or Hermon is the way I've heard scholars say it. I say Herman because I'm an uneducated man. All right, let's go, to, uh, let's go back to that passage. Psalm 133 is three simple little verses. It says, behold, in other words, look how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity together. That is the introduction to this whole theme. The dew of Hermon is unity in the body of Christ. But it's not just us getting along. It's much deeper than that. And there are resources behind the challenge of that that will grant you things that none of these other three expressions will give you. There's a treasure trove hidden in unity that God wants us to access. So he says, behold, how good and pleasant. It's not just pleasant, it's really good for you. There's some things that are good for you that aren't pleasant, some things that are pleasant are not good for you. I had a Krispy Kreme this morning, it was good. It was pleasant, it wasn't good. <laughs> I wanted to eat several more. Man, it just melted. It was one of the freshest donuts I've had in a long time. Can you feel that? I can just feel the hunger here. Yeah, we're cultivating hunger. But it wasn't good for me. And I, I uh, yeah, so <laughs> we move on. It was, it, it was pleasant. There's things that are pleasant and aren't good and good and not, that aren't pleasant, but unity is good and pleasant. When brethren dwell in unity together, then he has two verses, and they're two illustrations, two pictures of unity, of what it achieves. One is a vertical relationship, one is a horizontal relationship. And I would propose to you that the first one he's talking about being under authority and the other one he's talking about being in an honoring relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And both of those are essential. We need them both if we're going to walk in unity and break into the superior expression of what God wants to give us. Matter of fact, I would propose to you that Psalm 133 the New Testament passage that sums up these principles is Ephesians 3 and 4. The end of 3 and then going into chapter 4. It really does the same principles you can lift out of, out of both passages. And so the first illustration he, he gives us, he says, it's like, it's like the oil that flows down, down the beard, down Aaron's beard, down to the collar of his garment. It's kind of interesting how he says it. He says, like the oil that flows down, down the beard. So there's a lot of it. It's oil. But there's a lot of oil because it makes it all the way to the beard. I, I, we do a lot of ministry in Colombia. I'm going to tell you, you go to an anointing service in Colombia, and in the estates, you know, if you get, you get ordained for ministry, we'll take a little dab and boop, 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 you know. Just, we're, we're, we're conservative. You go down there, man, I'm, I'm telling you, they'll have a suit on, they'll be dressed to the nines, I'll take a jug and just douse their head. I'm thinking, well, that suit's gone. <laughs> yeah, but they're like, they're hung, they're just, I mean, it's dripping down their face and they're just doused in oil. It, uh, that's what this is talking about. It's the oil that flows down, so there's a, 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 a vertical flow to this thing. It, comes, it goes down to the beard. There's a lot of it. It goes down to like Aaron's beard. It's a priestly anointing. 
It's, it's a, an, a, an anointing of enablement that with this anointing, you can do things you couldn't do without it. You, there were things that you couldn't do before that once it hits you, you can do afterwards. Okay, it's, that's what happened to Aaron. It was, a, it was an anointing of enablement for priestly duty. And then it says it gets to the corners. or the, it, Some translations translate the, the, the corners of the garments, some the collar of the garment. The idea is this, that it starts with the head. Jesus is the head, but it affects the body. And so, but it, it, there's a flow down. And so we need to have relationships, not just because the next illustration is going to give us is this horizontal relationship. But the, it begins with this vertical relationship. We have got to honor the gifts and callings in our midst. And some of those gifts, now this sounds real self-serving because I'm the pastor, but I got to preach the word to you. It's talking about governmental gifts. We've talked about this before. Romans 12 are motivational gifts. They're largely a matter of personality, the way God created When the gift, when the grace of God hits it, it manifests in a certain way. Then there's gifts from the Son in Ephesians 4. That's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those are governmental gifts. These are from the, the Son. They're from Jesus. Jesus said what? All authority has been given to me, therefore go. And the gifts he gives are authority gifts. Then we have the, th the third category of gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. These are gifts of the Spirit. What did Jesus say? Tarry until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be endued with power. They're not authority gifts, they're power gifts. They're the ability to do with God what you couldn't do before. That's that anointing. But in order to, for us to truly function in the power gifts, we've got to be under the, the authority gifts. Because if you try to function in power gifts without being in relationship with authority gifts, you cut yourself off from the real covering and the source. You can, you can flow and measure. When John Huffy came to this church, he, he came to visit and he, came, he said, Pastor Dave, God's called us to this church. And I knew John was a prophetic young man. I said, you get ready for your prophetic gift to crank up several notches. You're going to see an exponential rise in your prophetic gift. Why? Because I knew what this house carries. And if he's going to come under the house, it's going to activate something within him. We'll travel to Columbia together and I'll say, I'll be preaching and I'll talk about the prophetic and I'll say, John, come on up here. You've got a word. He said, he'll be back then. I'll see him. He'll be joking around, goofing around back there, poking Roger or something, you know? And uh, I'm thinking, I'm going to call him on it right now. Come on up here, John. You know, he doesn't even know what I'm talking about. But he said, as soon as I say that, man, it'll come on him. There's a prophetic word will come on and he'll flow in that anointing. Why? Because there's a relationship with his leader. When we come under authority gifts, it's not about me being the one in authority. It's about authority, whether it's me or someone else. When we have that relationship, it, it releases something in our life. You know, and it's all, all these gifts with authority gifts, these are, these are relational in nature. Uh, part of the problem with the apostolic movement today is we haven't really understood what the nature of, the, the relational nature of these gifts. I've known of people where someone's coming from out of state and they'll call a guy and they'll say, why didn't you check with me? I'm the apostle over this region. You should have checked with me before you came in my region. That is silliness. 
It's relational. Paul said, I may not be an apostle to them, but surely I am to you. He understood the apostle Paul, the author of much of the New Testament, fully understood he was not an apostle to everyone. He was an apostle to those he was in relationship with and those who received his gift. And there were people that met the Apostle Paul, rubbed shoulders with him, shook his hand in church, and they in their hearts said, I don't think he's an apostle. I don't. Because they even said, he's not real impressive when he speaks. And they said, I don't think he's an apostle. And you know what? For them, they were right. They determined whether he'd be an apostle to them or not. And by their lack of honor for his gift, they cut themselves off from one of the greatest apostolic gifts to ever walk the earth because they failed to appreciate it, failed to honor it, failed to recognize it. And they're right. He wasn't an apostle to them. But in so doing, they cut themselves off from everything the apostle Paul carried. And so we need to understand when we recognize a gift, when we honor a gift, we get, when you honor a prophet, what do you get? A prophet's reward. What's a prophet's reward? A prophet's reward is the word of the Lord. They labor in secret, crying out to God for, for revelation. They, they, they have this relationship with God that they labor before the Lord and they cultivate that gift and what they labor for, you get for free simply by honoring it. You get a prophet's reward, and that's how gifts work. As we honor the gifts and callings in one another's lives, we get what they get because they're exercising their gift, and we just get to receive it. It's a wonderful thing. Now, the first illustration, it is the vertical, the vertical picture. And it's very clear. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, we have each, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And then he says, but to each one of us has been given a measure of the gift of Christ. Now catch that. He said, there's one, 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 but you've been given a measure. Every one of us have been given a measure of the gift of Christ. Then he goes on, he said, you know, uh, Jesus took captivity captive and led captives in his train. It's the picture of a Roman general conquering a city. And some of, the, some of the people he conquered, he will take them as prisoners and he will bring them back with him and give them away as gifts. And that's what he says. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are conquered men and women that are given back to the body of Christ as a gift by the conquering King Jesus. So a king would go, or a general would go in and conquer a, a city, and there may be a doctor and a philosopher, and he'd take them because they were valuable. He conquered them, and he would take them back and give it to a, a neighbor. Hey, I got a, I got a philosopher to train your children. And now that person has become a slave of the person they've been given to as a gift, and now they can leverage all that that person carries. That's the picture Paul is using. He said, so he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, so that we all may grow into unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, so that we may experience the full measure of the gift of Christ. I want you to catch that. He says, you have each been given a measure of the gift. You've been given a portion of Christ. Every one of us have. 
We've been given a portion, but as we come under these leadership gifts, people that are anointed by God to equip us and train us and grow us up in knowledge and in unity, when we bring that all together, when we come into unity together and everybody brings their portion, we see the whole materialize. And then we have the fullness of Christ. That's why chapter one of Ephesians, the last two verses say this. God has put everything under Jesus' feet, comma, for the church, comma, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The body of Christ is the fullness of Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying you will never have the fullness of Christ alone. The fullness of God is inaccessible alone. You only have a measure. You can have all kinds of great things, just you and Jesus. But if you want it all, you better find a body. You better find some other believers because the irreducible minimum of the body is two. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. There's something that Jesus will commit to the corporate. He will withhold from the individual. And if you want the fullness, you've got to get connected to some other believers. I'm telling you, the Lord, I've been, I've been having some time with the Lord this week. And I really am excited about some of the things he's been talking to me about and I've never seen before. And it's been, it's been real fun. But what I've done is I've reached out to some other leaders and as I'm talking, they're adding things to it. And I'm thinking, oh man, it just keeps growing. Why? Because God's not going to give what he's wanting to tell me just to me. He's, he made us be interdependent. So I, when I bounce it off to someone else, they add a piece and I start adding that and I'm taking notes and, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm getting a picture of the fullness, but it was, God gave me this little slice, this little nugget, and I'm, I'm looking at that, but I bring it to others and we grow that thing together. There's things that God has for us that we will never experience if we don't have relationships. You're left with your little measure. And the danger is when you think your measure is the whole, you get imbalanced and you, you cut off large sections of truth. Well, I don't believe in that. It's because the Lord didn't show it to you. Matter of fact, I would propose to you that there's an application of this to churches in general. Because God's not going to give us all that he wants to give us alone. That's why we have speakers come from the outside. We partner with other churches. We, you know, listen to other podcasts. We live in a great age where we can listen to podcasts and videos and we're pulling from other segments of the body of Christ. Why? Because we're adding to the measure so that we can get a picture of the fullness of Christ. That's what God wants for us. And so we have this picture. It's like the oil that flows down. Even down to the beard, down to Aaron's beard, even to the collar of his garments or the edge of his garments, depending on which translation you read. And then he says this, it is as if the dew of Mount Hermon would fall on Mount Zion. And then he closes this short little psalm with this phrase, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. 
So there's this vertical expression. We need to understand we, we honor gifts that God places in our life, and we all need that. There are people, I've, there, are, there are men and women of God that I look to as fathers and mothers in the faith that I call and bounce things off of. And I call different ones for different things because I, I recognize that they carry different things. And so I, I call them up and bounce them and get counsel and ask them because I want to I receive from that gift and if I put myself under them, I can get things from them. And we can have that relationship. But it's an honoring thing. But this one, then he says, it's as if the dew of Mount Hermon would fall on Mount Zion. So he says, unity is like oil. It has the same effect as an anointing oil. There's an anointing we can break into by being in unity and being under authority. And then he says... And it's like the dew of Hermon. It's as if the dew of Mount Hermon would fall on Mount Zion. We're going to get into that next week. Because if I open the door to this, we're going to be, be here for a while. But we need to realize that there's something accessible here. In unity together. And there is a test that we must each pass and this barrier this test if we'll pass it we can break into a greater measure so that we live in the dew rather than merely outpourings if we got out of churches if i just said okay now amen we're gonna leave and all of a sudden we hear the thunder and you can hear that rain starting most of us would look out there and think okay is it gonna last uh, you know i could wait five minutes because i don't want to get soaked Rain is disruptive. Revival is disruptive. The dew is not. This, let me put it this way. This passage is to revival corporately what the baptism in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are to one another. Okay? What do I mean by that? Okay. It's one thing to be baptized in the Spirit You've been submersed. You've, you've received power. You got rocked. You had an experience where the fullness of the Spirit came upon you. That's one thing. That's the event. The process to really root that as, as a lifestyle is the walk in the Spirit. It's one thing to be baptized in the Spirit. It's another thing to walk in the Spirit. This is the event. This is the lifelong process. And so we need to learn to cooperate this with that. That's the individual expression. The corporate expression, a corporate baptism is really revival, where God falls upon a group of people, where they all come out saturated. It's in the atmosphere. And you're in revival. This passage is how you root that in longevity. That's why he says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Sustainability is found in unity. Revival is not enough if it's not followed up by unity because we won't maintain what we obtained. I think a lot of times we're, we're like a saucer. We're, we're crying out for an outpouring and God pours out and it just... It just pours out the sides. And God wants to create a bowl and a picture. He wants, he wants to give you a greater capacity. He wants to give us a greater capacity. And what I'm saying this morning is unity, learning to live in unity, it creates a capacity 
to maintain and sustain what God is doing. Revival is the event. The unity of the spirit is the process to steward that and to cultivate it into greater expressions to go from glory to glory. And if we don't have a vision for that, we'll cry for an outpouring and then we'll waste it because we cancel what we, what we break into through revival, we allow ourselves to lose because of the way we, we lack honor for one another. And so we need to, uh, we need to break into this. Because there is an, a corporate anointing in the unity of the Spirit where we access what everyone brings to the table. And when we all come together and we all, have, we, we all become a river that feeds in as tributaries to the great river of God, that we begin to see the fullness of God in our midst. And it becomes a greenhouse effect. It becomes a fertile atmosphere where seeds grow quickly. It's conducive to growth. And people that had a hard time growing somewhere else come into this environment and grow like a weed. And then they go out and they carry it to the nations. That's what God wants to produce here. Let me close with this. I've got four minutes and I don't want to get into the rest of this passage. I do, but we can't. Got an email this, this week, or a Facebook messenger. Young gal wrote me and she said, Pastor Dave, I want to thank you and the staff and the church of Heartland for what you guys have sustained all these years. She said, I went to your church back in 2007 and 2008. She said, I was, I was a nominal Christian and some, I, here, here's the story. I won't try to quote her. Here's, here's the story. She reminded me of this girl, Katie. And one Sunday morning, there was a word of knowledge about somebody with a, an orange-sized tumor on their ovary. And no one claimed it. Just someone had a word of knowledge. And no one said, yeah, that's me. So a couple from the church met this young teenage girl. And they knew that she had that tumor. And they told her. This, this girl came from a really hard home. It was... It was just a lot of upheaval and chaos. And they went to her and said, hey, we were at church this weekend and someone had a word of knowledge. I believe God wants to heal you. So she came. I remember praying for her and she got instantly healed. Went back to the doctor. The, 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 that tumor was gone. She got radically saved. She went back to school and the girl who wrote me, she went up to her and she said, hey, essentially she says, hey, I met your Jesus. And the girl said, no, you didn't. She said, yes, she said, because no, she said, I knew her lifestyle. She said, so I started grilling her. Well, what, is it, what does salvation mean to you? How do you know you're saved? How did you get saved? What does, you know, and she's grilling her theologically, and she had all the answers. This girl that wrote me was a friend of Katie. Katie got radically saved, I remember, and I remember her bringing some friends, and then she ended up dying in a motorcycle wreck. But she came into the kingdom. And this other girl... She had gotten saved. She said, I was in the back seat of a car one time and I just got saved. She said, no one preached to me. No one witnessed to me. I couldn't even explain what happened. She said, I just knew I got to find a church. She was hungry for God. To this day, her parents still don't understand what happened to her. And so she found a, she, what, what she said was a nominal church. And then her friend Katie came and talk, talked to her and told her that she got healed. So she said, I became a part of Heartland for a, a little over a year. 
She said, now my husband and I, they're in the, the military and they were, they're now stationed in Mobile, Alabama, but they were stationed in Florida. And they, she said, the Lord specifically told us to get involved in this Catholic church. And they began to get involved in the Catholic charismatic movement. And they saw tremendous, she said, hundreds of people were getting, you know, touched by the Lord, saved, healed. They were training them in the prophetic. And so I called her and I grilled her. She knows her stuff, man. She, it, it's an amazing story. And she said, I just want to thank Heartland for what it's cultivated. I said, girl, you made my day. She said, she said, because you took a little teenage girl in that couldn't give anything back. I said, listen, you just, you gave, you gave enough back with this little letter so encouraging and she's still walking in it her and her husband and ministering and training people in the prophetic and their worship leaders and it's awesome what that has to do with what we talked about I'm sure I could find a tie-in but I'm not even going to try to I just thought you'd like to hear the testimony so let's go ahead and stand hallelujah let's pray Lord we thank you you are so good you are so good. Hallelujah. I want you to look up for a moment. Just look around the room. Look around the room. Some of you would never hang out with each other if it brought for Jesus. <laughs> there is no way you guys would hang out with each other. Isn't it amazing? That is an amazing thing. Most of you wouldn't have hung out with me if you knew me before Jesus. I didn't even want to hang out with me. I was trying to get away from me. But it's, it's the unity of the Spirit. And I'm telling you this morning that much of what you're crying out for, look around again, is already seated among you. The answer to those prayers reside within people already standing here. But if we don't honor, we can miss it. We're like the guy, you've heard the joke, the guy who's in a flood and he's on his roof and he cries out for God to rescue him and a boat comes by and says, hey, you want to ride? No, I'm praying for God to rescue me. And then a helicopter comes, no, I'm praying for God to And then he dies and he's standing at the gate and he said, Lord, why didn't you rescue me? He said, I sent you a boat and a helicopter, you know. <laughs> and God sends his answer in the forms and shapes of people that without him, we would have never hung around with. But there's a deposit, a measure in them that if we'll just begin to view each other through the spirit and not through the flesh, sometimes the answer to your theological dilemma will come up in a, just a casual conversation over coffee. Something you've cried and it seems like the heavens are brass and God won't answer. They'll just roll it out. You know what I was thinking the other day? This profound theological revelation. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't just give us yourself. You gave us one another. Lord, that you tied us together with bonds of covenant. Covenant love and covenant affection. And, Lord, I'm asking, God, that the wells of affection would begin to burst up within us. And, Lord, that they would tie us together. Lord, that we would be a people who would fight for one another. And, Lord, on those occasions when it happens we fight with one another, that our fight for one another would be greater than our fight with. Lord, that, that conflict would actually become the ground of deeper unity. We thank you for it, Lord. 
Now, Lord, I ask that you'd bless each of these. And Lord, in this hour of tremendous upheaval, God, I thank you that you chose that we would live in this hour of human history. And therefore, you have declared over our life that we are not only up to the challenge, we are the answer to the challenge facing our globe in this hour. We thank you for it, Father. We lift our head high and we stand confident in what you've put within us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.